The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. Carl, thank you very much. Welcome to the Halftime Report. I'm Scott Wapner, front and center this hour. The very latest on the fallout from SVB, the implications on the markets, the Fed, and of course, your money. Our investment committee and some special guests on what happens now. Altimeter's Brad Gerstner, there he is, joining me momentarily. We do kick things off with Josh Brown, Joe Terranova, and Bryn Talkington. First, we do want to check the markets. You heard Carl just talking about what's taking place in the bond market today. Stocks are up. Yields had plunged. The two-year dipping below 4%. It's about 4.22 now, so it's come back up a bit. The VIX surging. Josh Brown just taking into account everything that has transpired over a very busy weekend and the way things are going thus far. Just give me the thoughts for our viewers. These are the, these are the highlights that, that I'm looking at. The one year down 51 basis points today. Um, I know that's at its lows. Uh, back to 436. That takes us back to where we were October of 2022. So a lot of that upside in rates have been, has been taken out of the market that took months to build in literally hours. The two-year yield off 100 basis points. Let me give you a little bit of context on that. That is the, the biggest three-day drop. you got to go back to the aftermath of the crash in 1987. Yeah, so. you, you really are in a situation, uh, 10-year, back below its 200-day moving average. These are important levels, not because we think things will stay here, but it sets the table for a different mentality about what people think the, the rest of this year will bring, even relative to where expectations were last year. One of the recurring themes on this show, Judge, uh, is that the Fed will continue to do this until they break something. We said that. How many times did we say that? Mm-hmm. So, okay, here you, go. here you go. They broke something and not just one bank. I think we now had to make a decision at gunpoint whether or not every deposit in America is safe or it isn't. And the reverberations of that will be felt for a very long time to come. We might have a very quick solution here, which I think was important to make sure we don't have a full-blown crisis, but it's a different type of crisis now that unfolds over months and years about what did we just do? And I think there's a lot still unresolved, which explains why we're not up a thousand points in the Dow today, why there's still that lingering uncertainty. Joe, the, the most obvious conversation is what all of this means for the road ahead for the Fed, which left us with the idea midweek last week of higher, faster and for longer. Uh, Now it's lower, slower and for shorter, probably. And maybe they do nothing in a week or so time. Is, Is that the most important thing as you're thinking about now is what the road ahead means and how it might have changed for the Fed and then the impact on the markets itself? I think sometimes you get a lot of clarity out of volatile and tumultuous events in the market. And I think what is very obvious today as we sit here at 12.03 on a Monday morning is this is the biggest disinflationary shock that we've experienced since the Federal Reserve began combating inflation. Growth is back. The divergence between growth and value today is nearly 125 basis points, and growth should be back. Because from a sentiment and positioning perspective, neither one of those were reflective of where the market was overall. Chairman Powell often cites Paul Volcker, the 70s and the 80s. I think what the chairman needs to look at is what happened with Alan Greenspan in 1994. In November of 1994, the Fed raised interest rates 75 basis points. Two weeks later, they broke something. Orange County bankruptcy. Everyone remember that? Remember the Mexican currency crisis? What happened to Fed policy as a result of them breaking, breaking Orange County? Fed policy had a paradigm shift. They raised slightly higher, and then they began cutting rates in 1995. The peak in yields occurred 
with that Orange County bankruptcy moment. So mm -hmm. over the course of 13 months, seven rate hikes, 300 basis points. That's the model that Chairman Powell should be looking at 1994. This is eerily similar, and I think we're going to have the same type of impact. So, Bryn, um, Goldman's Jan Hatzia says in light of all of this, we no longer expect the Fed to deliver a rate hike at its meeting on March 22nd. Is that how you think as well? I think that has to be on the table. I think Josh and Joe walked, walked us through history really well. And I think that something clearly has broken and it's not really put back together right now. Right now, everyone's calm. Clearly, the market's saying rates are going lower. We're, we're, we're done raising rates. And I also think that the inflation numbers that come out this week, the market will totally dismiss them because they'll say those are old. Those were before last Thursday and going forward. This is very deflationary. And so but I don't think we're out of the woods, though. And so if I think about positioning, Scott, you know, while the big banks will clearly be recipients of those deposits of many deposits, it's like banks are highly, highly sensitive to really small changes in deposits. And to me, the impact is on financial earnings, because if you didn't know where your money was and what cash vehicle it was on Thursday, you sure as heck know today. And, you know, J.P. Morgan and their fourth quarter earnings put together a really good piece that showed in J.P. Morgan's balance sheet for every one basis point, one basis point rise in deposit rate. Scott, that's 250 million in net interest expense. And so I think you still have this bus you could drive through bank deposits to what money markets. And I still think that's really the weakness that will come through in financials. Therefore, S&P earnings is that people are going to be moving their money out of the bank deposits into treasuries and money markets. So I still think yeah. earnings are still too high because financial earnings have to come down because of this event that happened. Sure. You, you know, you, you raise the rate on deposits. Obviously, as you say, it changes net interest margin. One of, if not the most important metric when we're thinking about bank profitability and we're assessing what all of this means going forward for how we should view bank stocks. There's a lot of collateral damage just within stock prices alone. I bring up, you know, what Charles Schwab and that stock price has been doing today, which is down nearly 10 percent. I bring it up because Josh Brown, you bought Charles Schwab. I did today. I did. Some of the best trades I ever made were in the midst of a crisis where they just start indiscriminately hitting stocks that are not going to go down as a result of that crisis. And a really great example is like 12 years ago with the European contagion fears in late 2011. Bank of America went six bucks. Like Morgan Stanley was singled it. People forget it was like an echo crisis of 2008. We did it all over again in 2010, 2011, and you had a lot of, I would call them generational opportunities. Schwab could go lower. I don't think it needs to. I think we can um, probably see some of the panic come out of that name. They put out an activity report. More than 80 percent, this is important for every viewer who's got money custodied at Schwab with an advisor, our firm custodies with Schwab, for example, I think it's probably 60 or 70 percent of the industry. 80% of Schwab's total bank deposits fell within the FDIC's insurance limits. That put Schwab among the five highest ratios of the top 100 banks in the entire country. So if you think this is systemically risky for Schwab, then really nobody's safe if they're in that top five. Um, but I don't think that's the case. So today was a huge under overreaction in Schwab. I think the stock is down double digits multiple days in a row. It's been cut in half almost this year. I stepped in, took a position in the high 40s. Uh, I don't know if it's a trade or an investment. I just know overreaction when I see it. And I decided to try to make some money here. We'll see if I'm right. You know, the, the day, the day is, is not over yet. But I do this all the time in markets like this. Hopefully, hopefully this will have a similar outcome where cooler heads will prevail. And you don't sound like you're looking to be necessarily a renter, so to speak, that this is one of those, as you put it, perhaps I don't know. generational opportunity type things that you Look at if I'm up 10 sticks by the close, I might just say, all right, good enough. Keep in mind, I have exposure to Schwab. They're one of my most important business partners. We custody our client assets at TD, at Schwab. They've merged. Mm -hmm. uh, I think Schwab is OK. I don't know about the equity. I'm talking about the entity. And right now, that's really important. So I want to get to our, our headliner, Brad Gerstner, in just a moment. But, Joe, just give me a comment on how you're thinking about the bank's 
teeing off of what Bryn said as to whether the in, investor paradigm has to change because you think there are going to be some changes in the mechanics around net interest margin and things like that. Mike Mayo on J.P. Morgan upgrades it to overweight, says Goliath is winning. If this episode doesn't sort of tell you where the money, the, the, some of the more worrisome, so to speak, money has flowed over the, over the last you know, handful of days, then nothing will. So he upgrades it. But give me your quick thought before we bring in Brad. The simplest outcome is usually the correct one. Think about this logically for one second. What offers relief to all of the banks that are holding treasuries on their balance sheets in terms of assets? What offers relief is exactly what's happened in the last three days. It's where Treasury yields move lower. So is the Federal Reserve really going to obstruct the process of, on one hand, on a Sunday evening, announce that they're going to provide the necessary relief to the tension and stress that the banks are feeling, and then on the other hand, at a Federal Reserve meeting, come out in a press conference and talk about the need to continue utilizing extreme measures to combat inflation. There's no logic behind that. The simple explanation There's is no the Federal way. Reserve is going to continue to allow the relief be offered in the form of lower yield. Imagine a Fed press conference where in the first 10 minutes he talks about there might need to be some pain. And then in the second half of his comments, it's like, oh, and by the way, this week we're going to rescue this one, that one, this one in California. It's just not the way things are going to go. You have to use common sense here, not spreadsheets, to understand the situation we're in. All right. Let's bring in our headliner. He's Brad Gerstner. He is the founder and CEO of Altimeter Capital. Joined us in an exclusive interview. Uh, Brad, it's good to see you. Um, you know, you're probably certainly one of the most prominent voices from an investor base that comes on from that part of the world. You have venture activity aside from everything else that you do. Can you just give me your thoughts on all that's transpired here? Thanks, Scott, for having me on. I mean, the first thing I would say is it's just been an emotional weekend. Um, you know, our community bank failed. I heard from hundreds of entrepreneurs from schools. Um, from little leagues who were terrified that they had done something wrong, that they weren't going to get access to their money. Um, they weren't going to be able to meet payroll. They weren't going to be able to, you know, meet the needs of the kids they had committed to. And so, you know, I was proud to see a community rally together. Um, I know, you know, I'm from a small town in Indiana. I know Silicon Valley's not loved. I know that Silicon Valley doesn't always uh, do what's uh, in, in, in their own best interest in terms of communicating. But I will tell you that what happened here this weekend in saving, you know, and pushing to save, you know, these businesses, stepping up with no interest loans to help people make payroll today, like our firm and so many others were doing, that is the exact same thing that was going to happen today across this country from Maine to Hawaii. Um, including small banks in Indiana and Florida, if the Fed had not stepped up. The one thing we know for sure now, this was not, uh, uh, this is not a weekend about Silicon Valley Bank. This is really a story of an entire regional banking system that was in peril. And the canary in the coal mine may have been Silicon Valley Bank. And we're gonna, ha we're gonna investigate, there's gonna be plenty of things that all of these banks did wrong. But this parabolic move in rates, right, really dismantled uh, the hold to maturity portfolios of these banks. Um, it was exposed that they were undercapitalized. And I think if you look today, obviously a lot of these bank stocks are down. And I've had people text me and tweet me that, you know, see, we told you this, you know, th this isn't going to stop the contagion. To me, the stocks being down shows the perfect balance that our government struck here. You know, we often criticize our government, but over the weekend, we had the executive branch led by the president, the FDIC, the Fed, um, the Treasury rally together and find a balance in the middle, a roadmap forward that averted what I believe would have been an 08 type moment, uh, you know, coast to coast this morning. And what they said is wipe out the stocks. Wipe out the bonds, not a single dollar of taxpayer money going to any executive. In fact, we're going to go find the dollars that they sold in stocks in recent weeks. OK, but what we're going to do is we're going to give the confidence to the system that their deposits are safe. 
whether you're at Signature Bank, which got closed down in New York, whether you're at Silicon Valley Bank that has exposure all across this country, including Silicon Valley, and they gave us a roadmap forward mm -hmm. for other banks. We see a lot of stress in the market today. I don't think this is the last one. We have to work through this problem, and now we have a roadmap provided by the federal government that should give confidence to depositors, not to the CEOs, not to the stockholders, but to the depositors that you did nothing wrong and your savings are safe. So you, there's obviously a lot in, in what you just said, and, and I want to go to a number of different places within what you just told me. But you said we often criticize our government. And I think it's fair to say that oftentimes a lot of that criticism has come out from your neck of the woods, from some of the more prominent members of your community, being the venture capital community, which for a while has argued that government should get out of our way and let us innovate and let our companies grow and we don't bail people out. And now it seems like the venture community was the loudest on the digital rooftop, so to speak, screaming for help when it didn't seem to be as concerned about that in, in past instances. And how would you square that? First, I would say, you know, this this debate around federalism, limited government versus a government being involved is as old as the republic itself. I mean, the debates over the Federalist Papers, et cetera. And so, yes, I do think Silicon Valley and, and, and folks in Silicon Valley who took those positions in the past have to stand up and have to say, you know, state their case. But when I look at what happened over the weekend, right, this is radically different than 08. This is not a bailout for shareholders. This is not a bailout for CEOs. Their reputations are going to be destroyed. Their savings are going to vanish. It's not, you know, if you were a shareholder of one of these banks, which you may have thought was safe, you found out that it's not. But what we did was protect depositors who did nothing wrong. And listen, we have lively debates and we should have lively debates uh, on this issue. I suspect that it'll be a big part of what we're going to hear about running into the presidential election in 2024. Government has a role to play in this country. It creates the conditions for the greatest system of capitalism that's ever been known. Capitalism doesn't exist without a framework of government. But there's also a balance. And, you know, so I can fairly criticize at times government oversteps and at the same time, right, uh, you, know, you know, push for government setting up systems. For example, like the system that existed here, the system of FDIC insurance that's paid by the banks is what is paying for any shortfall in these deposits. It's not coming out of my mom's uh, taxes in Indiana. It's coming out of the bankers who paid into this system and insurance. And I think it's appropriate that the Biden administration and the FDIC pulled from that fund and that fund alone to pay for the shortfall in deposits. And, and frankly, I'm not even thinking about 2008. I'm, I'm thinking about, Brad, during the pandemic, for example, when I had the, you know, now famous exchange with Chamath over whether the airlines should be rescued or allowed to fail. And I didn't hear too much concern out, out of that part of the world about the baggage handlers or the ticket takers or the food service people or the counter people who hey, can Scott, very much Scott, be, be. Scott, in all fairness, I was on your yeah. program March 26, 2008. I was here the day the market bottomed. You and I were on together. And you very well know that I said the federal government just saved us from ourselves, right? Save those airline employees, and they did the right thing. Yes, we have a diversity of opinion in, in this country. It's what makes us great. Chamath is my friend, but I'm happy to debate him on any subject. And we do. The you know, there's a lot of criticism about, you know, uh, you know, the voices that came out of here over the weekend. I'm not trying to stifle any of that criticism. Let's all have the debate. Let's have it in open. Um, but, you know, to say that everybody in Silicon Valley is, you know, was against supporting the airlines in 2008, against the government's, uh, you know, uh, policies that went all in, 
um, you know, it's just a misstatement of the facts. I said it very I, well. I'm not saying show. that. I, I, and respectfully, Brad, I didn't say all. I didn't. I certainly didn't. I, I used the Chamath example as one of the loudest voices from your world in that very moment. And there's a reason that that went viral at, at the time. And it just put forward the debate over when it's quote unquote right or OK to rescue and when it's not, whom should be rescued and, and who shouldn't. And that's going to be litigated for the weeks and, and months ahead. And, and, and I, think I don't Joe, want to do that. It, you know, not to put words in his mouth. Right. But, you know, we had plenty of discussion and debate out here over the weekend. And I'm cer certain if he and others who were vocal this weekend were here, they would say the CEOs did not deserve to get bailed out. The stocks did not deserve to get bailed out. The bondholders did not deserve to get bailed out. Bailed out. Venture capitalists did not deserve to get bailed out. But the people who deserve to get bailed out were the innocent depositors. All they did, the only risk that they took, is they took their savings and they walked in to a bank, to Citizens Bank, to PNC Bank, to First Republic Bank, to the Bank of Hawaii, to Signature Bank, to Silicon Valley Bank. And we made a promise to them that we have a system of regulation that protects them. Just last Tuesday, the Fed, Chairman Powell, was in front of Congress and he testified there were questions on this. Is the banking system sound? Are you worried that the rapid increase in rates was causing stress in the financial system? And the reason he was asked that question was in the minutes, the February minutes of the Fed, the Fed themselves said there was a discussion about the stress being put on banks in the financial system caused by the rapid increase in rates. Our head regulator told us on Tuesday that things were fine. By Thursday, it was very clear that our entire regional banking system was in trouble. And so there's going to be plenty of investigation and plenty of questions asked for everybody involved. I'm not pointing fingers or blame. I'm celebrating what happened in Washington this weekend and saying this is why we're a great system. Let's have the debate. Let's get stronger on the other side. But let's not mm -hmm. attack capitalism or those who are funding entrepreneurs um, you know, for this problem. To think that a couple tweets this weekend brought down the entire national banking system is a farce. What exactly was your exposure to SVB as Altimeter and, and the companies in which you're an investor in? Scott, as you know, I started the firm in Boston and the first day we were open was November 1st, 2008. The first day, the first trade. And I started it with my own money in November of 2008 because nobody would give me money, right? I couldn't even get my own money out of the places that it was because gates were thrown up and there were lockups on, on money. But one thing everybody who experienced 2008 knew is that you never hardwired to a single bank. From day one, Altimeter set up multiple prime broker relationships, multiple banking relationships because we understood Right. Everybody who was prime brokering with just one prime in 2008 was running out the door trying to find another prime. And I give a lot of credit to UBS, who stepped up and gave me a prime brokerage account at that perilous time. So going into this, we had zero accounts. I've never had an account at Silicon Valley Bank, mostly because I founded the firm on the East Coast and we already had multiple banking relationships set up. So I had zero exposure to them. We have uh, three companies that we provided no, no cost emergency loans to over the weekend so that they could meet uh, payroll this morning. And we helped lead a working group of, of uh, hundreds of venture capital firms. And I saw leaders of these firms going into their personal bank accounts because their own firm accounts were tied up at Silicon Valley Bank to make loans or to just write checks to these entrepreneurs who were in trouble. So. You know, it's fair to say we had no direct exposure, but let's be clear. I'm a member of this ecosystem. I'm proud, uh, you know, to invest in, in hundreds and thousands of entrepreneurs who are creating the future. And, you know, and I worked my ass off all weekend, like everybody else did, to ensure that this thing doesn't goes down, go down in flames. It was a very perilous weekend. So what happens now for the you know, the, the younger investors, the younger startup 
founders who are trying to get the funding that you know you were trying to get back in the day you just had the prime source of that funding disappear virtually overnight so what does that mean for the startup universe is it going to be harder to get funding for the kind of companies that you're looking to invest in this is the irony of the moment scott right this is the irony of the moment silicon valley the startup universe across this country it's not just a Silicon Valley story. And frankly, it's a global story. We are at the verge of one of the most interesting periods of technological innovation around augmented and, and artificial intelligence of my career. We, I just hosted a dinner last Thursday, the night all this news was breaking, with, with 15 incredible young entrepreneurs who are founding companies, right, with two major CEOs who are meeting with them, who are coming out here, every company in America is going to be made better by what is going by, by this level of innovation. But remember, the world crashed in 2000, right at the birth of the internet, and all the internet changed all our lives and made us more resilient. We crashed again in 2008, right at the birth of mobile and birth of cloud computing, that it again allowed us to order our food supply in the middle of the pandemic with the, with the push of a button. And here we are again. We have a major reset that's occurring in the world. This wasn't a problem of the startup ecosystem. This wasn't a, pro, uh, you know, a problem of, of, of entrepreneurs or their access to funding. This was a national banking problem, okay? And so if we solve that problem, and I wanna get to that, I wanna talk about CPI and where we're headed with economic growth, but if we solve that problem, I, my hand's in the air. I want founders to come in here today. I'm excited to back them. We have money in the bank. We can access the money. There's no loss of enthusiasm right, to back the world's founders who are creating, uh, creating this amazing future. Um, but we just didn't want to be set back by something that, frankly, was much bigger than Silicon Valley's bank. It was the entire banking system. So given the enormity and the scale of, of what we just went through and hopefully don't continue to go through, we just don't know where, where this goes necessarily from here. But what do you think it means for the markets and for the Fed moving forward. Does, does the Fed pause in a week? Give me your thoughts as well. We'll pivot to the market conversation. Great. Well, I, I, I really think Joe nailed it um, when he talked about this being a massive deflationary shock. Okay. So let's telescope out for a second. You and I talked back in 2020, uh, March of 2020, when we came into this, the Fed went all in, rates went to zero. And I remember you and I having a conversation. We said, with this level of extreme and unprecedented intervention, right? And then we had two multi-trillion dollar stimulus packages. And we can argue whether that was too much. And then we were slow to raise rates in 2021. Lots of debate about why that, that occurred as well, okay? The parabolic rise in interest rates, and we needed to do it to get in front of inflation. It's impossible to think that we were going to stick this landing perfectly after all those preconditions that we were going to stick this landing without some major reverberations. And so ironically, I think it's slightly predictable that we find ourselves in this place. We overshot on how fast we were increasing interest rates. We went until something broke. When something breaks, I will tell you, every CEO, every board and every founder is coming in this morning and reevaluating what they thought they knew. And when they reevaluate it, they get more cautious. And that caution slows down the economy. That slowing of the economy causes more disinflation. Remember, inflation was already rolling over. The second derivative was slowing, and this will have even more force in slowing that deflationary effect. So the move today in the 10-year from four to three, five, right? That's not because everybody's hypothesizing about what the Fed's going to do. That's the market telling the Fed that you, you better slow down, otherwise a lot more stuff is going to break. We're gonna have a massive recession and much bigger problems. Well, I mean, I'm thinking of, you know, Gunlock, who's gonna be on with me later this afternoon, saying that the Fed follows the two-year. Uh, and we know what's happened that with that. Um, you know, a, a 100 basis point collapse in the two-year over a handful of days. So what does this then mean to you about the markets th themselves? 
Are you much more cautious today than you were even seven days ago? You know, honestly, Scott, I have mixed emotions. And, you know, I try to shoot everybody straight. You know, we haven't changed a lot in our portfolio. Um, On the one hand, I say the preconditions are better today, right, for our, our forecast going forward. Why? Because rates are coming down. I think the rate path, right, future interest rate hikes will be ameliorated. And when that happens, listen, our companies, the economy was doing just fine. What everybody was concerned about is that the Fed has caused 12 of the last 10 recessions and that we're going to do the same thing here. They were going to overshoot. And so in that camp, I would tell you that when we look at the slowing of economic activity combined with the Fed slowing of future rate hikes, maybe even stopping altogether, that is very constructive. On the other hand, like any good analyst, we're sitting here this morning and saying, listen, guys, And guys, we were wrong about what we thought we knew about the world last week. There was nobody around our table last Monday morning saying we're on, you know, we're on uh, the verge of the regional banking system collapsing. So we are trying to be humble in the face of all that which we don't know. Um, Ask those questions and appropriately and conservatively say, are there places where we can increase the size of our exposure knowing that this probably isn't the last part of this story, right? We have to prepare for, you know, a couple of weeks from now that we're going to have more bank wind downs. I think it's good that the Fed has given us a roadmap for how we'll deal with those. We'll wipe out the stock. We'll wipe out the, you know, executives pay, but we'll protect the depositors. That's good to know. I think that's a sets up a good precedent. But, you know, I said yesterday on Twitter, we're a long, long way from being out of the woods. The only thing we accomplished last night is making sure that millions of people weren't lining up at their small hometown banks today. You know, I talked to my mother last night, 85 years old in Florida, big big community down there. And my sister and my mom were asking me, you know, is our bank okay? And when I can't answer that with clarity for them, you can only, and you look at what is happening to all of these bank stocks across the country today, you can only imagine Right. The panic that was going to ensue today when everybody started getting those calls today. So I'm thankful we staved that off. But listen, the economic repercussions of what just happened are unknown and unknowable. So I think that for all investors, we have to remain cautious. Um, But if you have a three to five year time horizon on companies and, you know, in venture capital, our time horizon is 10 years and we're going to lean into these moments. We're going to support the best founders. Um, And, uh, you know, I think that this is, uh, you know, our system is stronger because of this, not weaker. You know, I'm going to leave it there. I I wanted to ask you about Meta, but I just feel like there's a a better day to do that. Uh, And we'll, I'm I'm sure, have that chance to to do it. But I think you've you've left us in in a good place. Brad, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me. See you all. All right. Yep. That's Altimeter's Brad Gerstner. We're going to take a quick break. Coming up, we do have another halftime exclusive. Top tech investor Glenn Kacher, Light Street Capital, is going to join us with his take on all this. We're back in two minutes. Old Dominion Freight Line was built on keeping promises. With an industry-leading on-time delivery record and low claims rate, we keep promises better than any other LTL freight carrier because we treat every shipment like it's our most important one. Visit ODFL.com to learn more. B2B selling is tougher than ever, and we feel your pain. If you're struggling to close deals, consider giving LinkedIn Sales Navigator a shot. This sales intelligence platform helps professionals like you engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator also guides you in targeting the right buyers, highlights key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize, and uncovers hidden hot prospects so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data, enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash halftime report. That is linkedin.com slash halftime report for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash halftime report and get started. 
Welcome back to the Halftime Report. I'm Seema Modi. Here's the update at this hour. A top Democrat in Congress is calling on both parties to work together on a better way to protect bank deposits than the current FDIC insurance that only covers up to $250,000. In a live interview in the last hour on CNBC, Representative Maxine Waters, the ranking member of the House Financial Services Committee, said everything is on the table for consideration. Lloyd Blankfein says only a few banks may have issues similar to the problems that brought down Silicon Valley Bank. In a tweet this morning, the former Goldman Sachs CEO says the biggest banks have much tougher regulation and stress testing. And the Wall Street Journal reports that SVP's failure came just 14 days after the big accounting firm KPMG gave the bank a clean bill of health for 2022. It gave Signature Bank a similar report 11 days before it failed. The journal says those reports will probably generate lawsuits and regulatory scrutiny. Scott? All right, Seema, thank you. It's Seema Modi. Let's bring in now Glenn Kacher. He's the founder and CIO of Light Street Capital, former analyst at Tiger Management as well. Welcome. It's good to see you after I know it's been a tough weekend for everybody. Thanks very much. I appreciate that, Scott. And, uh, you know, I think it's our job to, to first start by thanking the Treasury, the Fed, and the FDIC for stepping up and, and backing uh, these deposits before the open this morning and even before uh, futures opened last night. You seem to be somewhat critical over the weekend of the venture community when you tweeted, perhaps the venture community should step up and fund the bank that supported the making of billions for the last 40 years. The implication being that, you know, this is a bank that made many billionaires out there and that at a moment of crisis, many of them ran the other direction. Is, am I right to suggest that that's where you're channeling your thoughts? Well, I think it's less about how we got here and more about how we move forward as you know a community and as an industry and you know if you look at it constructively when i started light street capital you know 13 years ago i walked into the branch and in, in, on sand hill road and um opened a, a account in five minutes uh you know told them who i was uh what i was going to do and 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 i had an account and and uh, started my business with that. And, you know, that's and, and this bank is really a part of our community. It's it's it may not be a money center bank uh, to the rest of America and it may not be a household name, but this is the money center bank for Silicon Valley. And we need that. And so I think it's up to us as um, the individuals and, and firms that benefited from this bank for 40 years uh, to step up and and um, you know back what you know whatever the successor is going to be. What happens now? Do you, how are you thinking about the, the markets from here? I'm sure you had some chance to listen to Brad Gerstner a bit on on his thoughts about you know worrying that we're not totally out of the woods. Uh, but looking at some of these dislocations for possible opportunity, what about yourself? Well, to Brad's point, we have a roadmap for how uh, depositors are going to be protected and how uh, management teams and, and, and risk managers that were running the uh, asset side of the house um, are, are going to be uh, dealt with or, or, or where they're going to end up. And, and so we understand kind of I, I think, and these things can change with time, um, kind of the, the way, uh, the pathway for things to happen. So, the, you know, I think then you say, well, what's going to, what, what's the Fed going to do here? We were probably at, at, at too low rates for too long, which created this glut of cash that needed to be invested. And, uh, and now when the rates went up quickly or over the last year uh, plus, uh, it, it did break something, right? And so now the Fed probably has to sit back and say, how are we going to behave now? Okay, we're not going to hike rates uh, as quickly probably as we were planning on doing. And therefore, what does that mean? Inflation probably uh, can be is going to be a little bit stickier. And so then uh, you have to look at the federal government and say, from a fiscal policy, is the federal government going to continue to do uh, inflationary things? 
which they have been doing, um, and and hopefully they rein it in and take some take some responsibility for helping uh, shrink inflation. I think the Fed did obviously have an effect already on uh, the growth of the economy, and while it may not have shown up in all the measures, it take uh, you know as as uh, the chairman has talked about, it takes time for those those things those changes to show up. So uh, we'll, we'll see. We'll see what it does for the um, the companies in our industry, the companies in the banking industry, and, and really all the customers of the technology companies that we're investors in. So I'm not sure we know exactly uh, from a macro point of view where we're headed, but it, uh, what I do know is that today we're in a lot better spot than we could have been if action wasn't taken over the weekend. I think there are many people who would agree with that statement, obviously. So you have a lot of exposure within the tech space. It's primarily what you do, right? Tech and media, but with a real heavy leaning on on tech. So are you thinking differently about tech stocks today than you were just last week? Uh, not not a whole lot. I mean, we took some exposure down at the end of last week, net exposure and uh, gross so we, we did pull back a little bit and, you know, and, and we didn't know what was going to happen this weekend as well. So um, I'm feeling uh, OK about where, where we are. I'd say, you know, we're always trying to invest in the trends in the industry that we think can grow through these really tough times. They're, they're powerful trends. You look at the artificial intelligence improvements that are coming to the internet companies and to the software companies and how powerful that is. We're going to have software that makes this, that helps make decisions for you, can create content, can test marketing messages. It's incredibly powerful, things that we haven't seen before. And that's powered by the AI semiconductor group, which is NVIDIA, AMD, and then, of course, the company that makes those semiconductors for them, TSMC. So we see an incredibly powerful uh, trend there that I don't think a little bit higher rates uh, are, will or, or you know higher inflation is, is really going to slow down. Hey, Glenn, it's Josh Brown. Thank you so much for joining us. And I agreed with uh, the tweet that Scott posted on screen. I'm curious if there's so, so now it feels like a bomb has gone off and we're all sitting in the aftermath of it. Um, this is, to my knowledge, the fastest ever we've seen $42 billion be withdrawn from a bank. Uh, I don't think it's ever happened before and may not ever happen from, from now on uh, because clearly something needs to change with the financial system. So from a technology perspective, from a fintech perspective, should we have a situation where a bank can lose 25% of its capital in a few hours? Because that is a very different world from the 1930s and 40s where most of our regulation originally comes from. What do you think has to happen from this point? Yeah, it's a a fantastic question. Um, I think it's interesting. This is a bank where I think you guys know, for the startup companies that had uh, loans, uh, venture-backed loans, they were uh, contractually kept cash in, in in the bank. So this was a you know we had, they had a lot of you know deposits that were pretty sticky, but uh, obviously not enough because there were a lot of large depositors that were way way over the two hundred fifty thousand um, dollar you know insurance limit. So I think we have to take a look at that at that uh, threshold and how to deal with with, with that certainly. And, um, you know, I think you have to look at the banking industry and say, OK, w- the the ability to move so quickly uh, today is is here. And so therefore, we may need far more, uh, far more reserves than than in the past, certainly for regional uh, banks that might have uh, that might have concentrated exposure to certain a certain industry or a certain geography uh, like Silicon Valley Bank did. Hey, Glenn, I'm going to leave it there. A little jacked on time, as I'm sure you can understand, but I so much appreciate your time and your insight. I know we'll talk to you again soon. Thank you. All right. Thank you very much. All right. That's Glenn Kacher uh, joining us as well. Up next, the short seller that sounded the alarm on SVB in the first place back in January. 
hasn't done TV, joins us when halftime returns in two minutes. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. EdwardJones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Calling the collapse. Welcome back. Our next guest first sounded the alarm on Silicon Valley Bank back in January when he initiated a short position in that stock. The shares fell more than 80% last week before the company was shut down uh, by regulators, as you obviously know by now. Bill Martin is the founder of Raging Capital Ventures. He joins us now. Welcome. Welcome. Um, What did you see back in January that led you to put this position on? Well, I first started digging into Silicon Valley Bank because of all the issues that venture companies were having last year and thinking that uh, that would translate into credit losses on their venture portfolio. But when I dug in uh, further, I realized that they had bought, in rough numbers, about $100 billion long-duration, low-rate mortgages at the top of the market in 2021, uh, and that was sitting on their balance sheet and hadn't, hadn't been reflected in, in book value and how the street was thinking about valuing the company. So, I mean, how do you square the issue of, you know, having these unrealized losses with the reality of we may not be having this conversation necessarily if there wasn't a a run on the bank? Having the unrealized losses in and of itself isn't necessarily catastrophic, catastrophic, obviously. Uh, A bank run is. Well, I think it just comes down to magnitude. And when you look at uh, the banking industry, Silicon Valley was really an outlier given the scale. But, you know, year in, they had roughly $16 billion of unrealized losses, which was far in excess of their $11.5 billion of tangible common equity. Um, so, you know, a lot of banks uh, have, you know, low-rate loans, low-rate mortgages on their books. Um, but, you know, as part of a diverse institution, that's okay. Um, but it, it was really extreme in this scenario. I'm going to leave you after this question because we're having a little bit of an issue with your audio. And frankly, I can't hear you that well. And if I can, I bet our viewers can either. But have you have you moved on to other other banks? I mean, how are you thinking about now the the broader scale of the regional banking complex? Well, I I think um, there's clearly a regime change. People haven't been paying attention to these unrealized losses. Uh, Now they are. And uh, I think regulators clearly are. Uh, and so I, I think the industry as a whole faces uh, a de-risking period, um, a need to raise capital in some cases, and for shareholders, less profits and less return on equity. Um, and so I think there are other, are other opportunities. I think the industry's, you know, secular will be challenged at this point. Bill, I'm going to have to leave it there. I appreciate you joining us. And maybe we'll chat some other time, but it's just too disconcerting trying to to hear you with the echo in the room. I hope you'll be understanding of that. We'll work on that next time. This Bill Martin, uh, William Martin, joining us from Raging Capital Ventures. We're back after this. All right, Bryn, um, let's talk more about the market here because you know the Dow obviously has been you know, all over the roadmap today. It's currently down by about 14. I think we're just trying to figure out you know, where we may be heading from here. Obviously, the interest rate complex is one to keep a close eye on. 413 is where we are on the two-year. The 10-year is at 352. Give us more about what you're looking at at, at, uh, in these moments. These are these are early days. I don't think this is a game set match of, yeah, we're all done. The banking system's fine. I will say it's important, you know, your previous guest, you know, Bill, wrote that tweet on January, you know, 23rd or something. What hasn't been talked about is, Scott, is on March 6th, Martin Greenberg, who's the chairman of the FDIC, he actually gave a presentation and said, there are 620 unrealized losses at these banks. Banks are going to have to have really prudent risk management around their treasury funding. And this is complex. And we have a keen eye on this because this is going to be difficult. And then, Scott, on the 7th and 8th, we sat through painful testimony from Congress. 
you know, with, with Powell and none of them really hit on this on this question. And so I think that the FDIC was certainly well aware of this. And I think that we're going to have to get through this. So for my opinion, it's like stay defensive, stay cautious. Don't try to be a hero here, because I think this is still a moving target of what actually is going to happen. But bottom line, I do think it's very deflationary. Joe? Certainly very deflationary. I'm more concerned about Main Street than I am Wall Street, quite candidly. Um, if Wall Street, if we see risk assets decline further, that's going to be capitulation. That's going to be an opportunity. I'm very concerned that what we've done is that we've dented confidence. And that's very important because the consumer we know has been resilient. But we've damaged confidence here. We've certainly made the consumers realize the significant value of cash. And I don't mean cash as an investment vehicle. I just mean cash itself. And then the last point, and, and it really uh, correlates to what Brent is saying about this not being over, what's the incentive for an uninsured depositor to remain at some of these regional banks, even with an explicit guarantee from the FDIC and the Federal Reserve? Human nature is to think about moving to a safer port, whether that's a Citibank, Bank of America, or JP Morgan. Or, or we decide that the new policy, soon to be written into law, is every deposit is automatically protected. And then somebody's screaming, oh, this is so great for JP Morgan. Is it? If nobody has to worry about their deposits anymore, then what does it mean to be a fortress bank? And these are some of the, so when I talk about reverberations, mm -hmm. these are now some of the new questions that we're gonna have to consider as a society. Do we no longer have to worry about what bank we're depositing money into. All right. We'll take a quickie. Final trades are next. We've got another very big interview coming up, 3 o'clock Eastern time today. Closing bell, Jeffrey Gundlach, Double Line CEO, on what all of this now means for the Fed, of course, the economy, and the markets. Hope you'll join me then. Let's do some final trades. Bryn, what do you have for us today? Yeah, healthcare was my sector pick at the beginning of the year. I'm going to stick with it with AbbVie, biotech, pharmaceutical, growth at a reasonable price, good defensive name going throughout the year. Okay, thank you for that. Uh, Josh Brown. Uh, I like the action in Oracles, the name I added to last week in the bear market for NASDAQ. Today's a little bit better. Joey. Bought more GLD. Mm -hmm. The money within commodities stays in commodities. You're seeing a lot of selling in oil. It's going to go into gold plus the deflationary environment. I'll see you in a couple hours with Gunlock on Closing Bell. The exchange is now. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools.